This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayakono or the Cayuga Nation. The Gayakono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayakono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of the Gayakono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On October 8, 2021, bioarchaeologist Carlina de la Cova from the University of South Carolina at Columbia met with a panel of SIAM's students and faculty to discuss the history of anatomical collections in the United States and how to ethically engage with the marginalized individuals who make up these collections. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Radio SIAMS, our uh, special edition podcast at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. I am Matthew Velasco, an assistant professor of anthropology and core faculty member of the archaeology program here at Cornell. And today we are lucky to have a great group of graduate students and a very dynamic speaker and scholar to share some of her work with us, Professor Carlina Delacova from the University of South Carolina at Columbia. Professor Delacova's work uh, for well over a decade now has looked at the anatomical collections that, that lie at the very foundation of bioarchaeological and forensic knowledge. She studies signs of disease in the bones of the individuals housed within these collections, disproportionately coming from uh, marginalized uh, populations, the deviant dead, as she calls them in her work. And she looks at these collections as manifestations of structural violence, both in the lives of the individuals who ultimately were incorporated into the collections and in the, their preservation and appropriation and use in the name of scientific advancement. So there's a double injury that she describes uh, traversing the boundary of life and death uh, with the individuals who constitute the uh, important anatomical collections in the history of physical anthropology. Now today, participants of the podcast have read two of her recent publications on this work. Uh, the first is in a much needed volume called Theoretical Perspectives in Bioarchaeology, which is really the, the, the state of the discipline uh, right now, I think is encapsulated in this uh, volume from Rutledge. Uh, and her chapter is called Making Silence Voices Speak, Restoring Neglected and Ignored Identities in Anatomical Collections. And we've also read another uh, chapter uh, from uh, the Matt and Holland edited volume of the Bioarchaeology of Marginalized People. And that chapter is entitled Marginalized Bodies and the Construction of the Robert J. Carey Anatomical Skeletal Collection, A Promised Land Lost. 
there's much to talk about and unpack in Professor Delacova's work and in these articles in particular. And we have a team of uh, SIAM's affiliated students that will help us do that work today. Before we, we dive into the content of, of Professor Delacova's scholarship, I'm interested in knowing a bit more about uh, your academic origin story, really your bioarchaeological origin story. Um, what what brought you to the study of gulfs? Um, the pathways into our discipline are so varied. I think it could be very powerful to learn like, what sparked that initial curiosity and how did it uh, develop, right? Was it before undergraduate studies, during, et cetera? So uh, Professor Delacova, if you could share a bit about your, your personal journey into bioarchaeology, that would be fantastic. Well, well, thank you. First, I want to thank everyone for having me and, and thank you for being here. Um, that's a, a great question. How did I stumble into this discipline? Um, well, when I was a kid, I read a lot of National Geographic. You know, when eight-year-olds were reading comics, I was reading National Geographic and we had a whole bunch of old National Geographics in the house with the Leakey family and uh, the Dark Child and all of that exciting jazz. And so I was always very interested in that. I watched Wild Kingdom as a kid and I was always excited about the primate segments. Although watching those old episodes of Wild Kingdom now, I, I don't feel so good about them, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> um, but uh, so I guess that was the start of a career and I'd always been interested in nature programs. And then one day, I was in my school library. I had to have been in the fifth grade. It was the fourth or fifth grade. And there was a book by Ashley Montague called A Study of Human Dignity. And it was on the Elephant Man, uh, Joseph Merrick. And I was very intrigued by Joseph Merrick's story. And it was one of those soft spots, I think, in my childhood that sort of everything kind of culminated together. And I didn't know what anthropology was at that point, even though now I know Ashley Montague is a very well-known, was a well-known and respected anthropologist. It wasn't until I got to college and I was taking a general education requirement course, you know, Introduction to Anthropology with uh, Robert Buzz Tunin at the University of North Florida. Uh, one day he came in and he had the cast of those Australopithecines and he made them talk. And that's when I said, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. And so um, that's how the path kind of started. And uh, so it kind of got to where I am now. It was a number of things, really. Initially, I started with an interest in paleoanthropology uh, and studying Neanderthals. And even as an undergrad, I had argued that the it, it doesn't make sense to me that Neanderthals are very much so like us that there wouldn't be any evidence of interbreeding. And, uh, but the, at the time, the field was too contentious, especially for, from the undergraduate perspective, from the outside looking in. It was very volatile in terms of Neanderthals and anatomical human relations, to put it politely. Um, and so I said, no, I don't want to do this. Let's just turn our lens inward back towards our own history. And so I grew very interested in looking at history during the, the Civil War in terms of looking at health differences uh, between African-American soldiers uh, and white soldiers 
but the the skeletal individuals just they weren't there and so my advisor uh, in graduate school uh, Della Cook at the Indiana University said why don't you think about broadening your your path and uh, why don't you think about looking at folks that were born during the Civil War folks that were born you know during the antebellum era seeing if you can capture that Civil War element you're so interested in uh, and our basic anatomical collections and so that, that's how I started and in the process of doing research for my work uh, there were a lot of things that came back and harked back to my own childhood. One of the things I had to read was the slave narratives. And so in reading the slave narratives, there were a number of things that stood out that I remembered as a child that my great grandmother who raised me for the first five years of my life did. And I never understood uh, up to that point of actually reading the narratives, you know, we don't question our elders where I'm from and whatever they tell us, it is the law of the land. And so every night before my granny went to bed, I call her granny, she would put a broom across the door. And I asked her, granny, why are you putting the broom across the door? And she said, oh, honey, it's to keep the evil spirits out. Lo and behold, I found that very passage in the slave narratives. And it was in that moment that, you know, this mention about how Slaves would put the uh, enslaved peoples would put the broom across the door uh, with the belief that evil spirits couldn't enter the domicile because they would have to count every horse hair before they entered. So they would essentially be out all night counting the horse hairs. And it was in that moment. And there were other things uh, that, you know, in terms of conjuration um, and, and health that I had grown up with and dosing. I was one of those kids. I was dosed with everything you can think of as a child. Um, in terms of SSS tonic and uh, spirits of camphor and turpentine, um, never got sick. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was those things that I realized, oh my gosh, I have this great opportunity to study not only my past, um, the past of my ancestors, but really the past of this nation and this environment that I grew up in and to see how it was shaped, how it changed, what environmental forces impacted health. So that's when I really realized this is what I want to do and this is where I want to be. Yeah, it's fascinating how much, you know, for, for a journey that involves some turns, move away from paleoanthropology, there's a remarkable coherence to your story, right, where there's this kind of uh, intellectual spark as a child, this empathetic spark, and how your work and development as a scholar kind of brings you back to that, those early experience. I think it's really uh, uh, beautiful and kind of instructive on how our, how we, we make meaning and think about our own work as, as multi-temporal, right? It's, it's engaging with, with aspects of, of our history, it's engaging with aspects of, of the nation's history. I think it's a fantastic Thank you for sharing your origin story. I, I want to now to open the floor to uh, some of our discussants today. So I think first I'll turn it over to Alex Simons. If you can uh, introduce yourself as well, uh, name, I suppose most of us are archeology span graduate students here, correct? I mean, just so your field, if you want, just in just a sentence or two, um, 
for the listener at home and the national issue. Hello, uh, my name is Alex Simons, as Matt said. I'm a second year PhD archaeology student in the anthropology department, and I have research interests in stable isotope analysis of human and faunal remains and human environment interactions. Uh, my question, uh, I really enjoyed your, the readings that we did prior to this. Um, and given that your work focuses primarily on physical human remains, which have been, and you discussed how they are institutionalized as objects, uh, I wanted to ask whether you kind of extend this uh, analysis and to the analytical data that is derived from those remains, uh, not necessarily in the collections that you work with, but in other archaeological and anthropological materials, uh, and given and that how that data continues to be institutionalized as objects in the self, uh, even in cases where the physical remains get repatriated or reburied. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I'm going to try and turn on my um, video here from my least flattering angle. <laughs> um, so that's a really good question. So one of the things I try to do in teaching, um, especially in terms of dealing with this, uh, is addressing the issues that you just asked me about in terms of how these individuals have become almost ob objects, essentially objects in terms of um, how they've been thought about how even scholars today continue to perceive of them um, as opposed to being actual individuals influenced by their environment. Um, and in that sense, how really relevant are um, the methods that we've derived from their skeletons if we don't know, if our age estimates, for example, aren't accurate about many of these individuals, um, as well as if many of them were institutionalized and didn't move around a lot, what does that really tell us about uh, some of the things that we've derived from their skeletons, how accurate that is? So, and teaching, I've addressed those issues. And in publication, I allude to it, but it hasn't been one of those things that I've really fully tackled yet. Honestly, it's one of those things in the future that I've been looking forward to tackling, but there there are a few things still in the pipeline, I think, for me that I feel I need to do and I need to get done um, for the individuals in these collections before I start to address that, because that is going to open uh, a can of worms in the discipline, um, which, uh, which is going to be exciting. I say that with irony. So I, I hope that answered your question, Alex. I, I don't... Um, you know, in terms of, let's see if I can get this to sit up, in terms of what you're asking. Uh, yes, thank you. Okay. Let's move on now to Carol Ann. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Carol Ann Barsotti. I'm a first year MA student in the archaeology program. Um, I'm looking at the interpretation of early religion within museums and the role that plays on modern um, political policy. Um, I too also have a data question. Uh, so after um, 1955, the law changed in St. Louis, the collections you were working with um, could only accept bodies that were willed to the institution. I understand that you did not specifically work with the bodies that entered the collection after 1955. My question is, did you see any data or have you compared data from bodies that entered the collection before the 1955 law changed? to those that were willed um, to the actual collection. And if you did, were there any noticeable differences expressed from those that experienced structural violence to those that may have not? 
That's a great question. And as to date, I have not actually started looking at the individuals that are willed. Um, a part of that is, I guess, my my influence for most of my career has been on 19th century health. Uh, but I do know, I do know from publications, and there are publications out there by Trotter and others who discuss the differences in terms of actual body size um, between uh, the individuals that were willed versus the individuals that were non-willed. And uh, the differences are quite significant in terms of uh, bone, uh, bone robusticity, for example, uh, as well as stature. Uh, that have been addressed that they, the argument, the argument in the old days, well, the willed individuals may not be as representative of the general population at this time, because perhaps they are, you know, of their, they are of an actual higher socioeconomic status. And so they're actually a little bit better. I don't like using terms like better and healthier, and, uh, but in terms of access to resources, they may have had more access to resources and hence um, that's why they are outside the, they're really outside of the average when you look at the Terry individuals before 1955 versus the ones that were willed and donated. Um, they are above average in everything. And so they don't really follow a normal distribution. So I know that studies like that have been done um, in regard to that. So um, I haven't looked at it directly because my focus has primarily been at this point in my career uh, understanding sort of the the impacts, the the social, the social and the biological and the cultural and the biological in regard to those great moments in history that these individuals lived through. So like the Great Migration, um, uh, as well as the large state institutions. Um, and in recent years, my work has ironically taken a turn towards that, um, looking at the the large state institutions and the structural violence within those institutions and how that really impacted things that we see that we would think, oh, that's old age, but we're finding out it's not old age. And then tying that back today, like I said in my talk yesterday, um, to what we see and, uh, you know, those facilities today, you know, elderly nursing homes, um, uh, live, assisted living facilities, so in Florida, where I'm originally from, we call them ALFs, uh, things like that, how similar patterns are still being observed, both in the past as well as today. Thank you. Welcome. But those publications are out there. They're out there for the earlier parts. And those folks are off the chain, literally, to put it lightly. Thank you. Uh, Carol Ann, for your question, and Professor Delacova for your response. Uh, next, we will move to Aisha. Hi, uh, hello and good morning, uh, Professor Bilakova. Uh, my name is Aisha Matson. It is such a privilege to get to know your work and to interact with you today. Uh, I'm very interested in questions of decoloniality and modernity. You know, I had the opportunity to also interact with the archaeologist, uh, Dr. Uzma Rizvi, uh, who also works on similar questions. Uh, I'm a third year student in the Department of the History of Art and Visual Studies. And for my PhD, I look at the Indian cosmopolitan industrial port city of Bombay in post-independence India, and how different communities articulated themselves through different popular visual mediums, such as posters, documentaries, videos, and so on. So I, uh, I really wanted to, uh, you know, sort of, 
you know, bring up the question of the deviant dead uh, that you write about, uh, that you work on, um, and and the question of the continued perpetuated control, um, containment, and mutilation of black bodies uh, within the institutional realm, uh, you know, after the Great Migration. Uh, kind of looking at this great migration from the space of the plantation to spaces such as infirmaries, mental hospitals, uh, farms, and so on. So, you know, and then I couldn't help but tie it into uh, how we can tie it into the, the prison in industrial complex and how these practices sort of find continuity in, in the present. Uh, say, you know, in the case of the pandemic and the question of unknown of the, uh, of unknown unclaimed bodies mass burials and uh, the you know the racist dynamics of policing and discrimination during uh, covid um, and i also wanted to sort of touch upon um, you know that many of these in migrants did not obviously have uh, documents uh, documents with them they carried very little uh, during the great migration and uh, you know, the question of identity becomes so precarious uh, uh, and it resonates with what happens today across the world, uh, you know, with refugees uh, coming into the U.S. and other parts of the world. Uh, so I just wanted to talk to uh, our exploitation of that identity, um, you know, uh, documents uh, and also through the occupation that um, these enslaved people of uh, now sort of liberated persons uh, uh, held at that time that they were, you know, uh, unskilled uh, laborers uh, or people uh, holding unskilled occupations are pushed out of that narrative. Uh, you know, they're dismissed, but they're brought back in through bioarchaeology, through very different unethical and inhuman ways. Yeah. It's sort of like a big question there so i just thought i'd uh, bring up different points yeah and i mean these are all many great points um that uh again uh excellent points in terms of what you're asking and, and uh wow there's so much there in terms of um in terms of digesting even for me i mean when i started this research I guess for me, it was more of a personal journey uh, in terms of thinking about the experiences that my, my great grandmother would have had in the Great Migration and um, uncovering these things. And you point to so many great things, that movement from a plantation space uh, pre-Civil War into the Civil War and even post-Civil War into uh, being a, a sharecropper. Um, again, and then that that movement from being a sharecropper in the South, trying to escape the Jim Crow South. Not that everyone in this collection or these collections were sharecroppers, that I, I can't be sure of. Um, but uh, then that defined sort of that defined ideology we have of many Black folks from the South moving up to the North during this time and be, being relabeled unskilled laborers and really being the invisible. Um, the invisible individuals in society, uh, again, very much like the institutionalized, which also make their way into these collections against their will. Um, uh, again, these narratives still resonate today. Uh, it's very true that in terms of the use and the medicalization of black bodies, and, and here at the University of South Carolina, I do teach a course on um, 
know, medical experimentation in the black body and uh, how that seems to be a consistent theme, even though at this point we've gone past the Nuremberg Code and we've gone past um, things that sort of define what medical ethics is, at least in regard to the Terry collection and the Cobb collection. Uh, but again, because the legislation allowed for uh, the, I call it the non-consensual harvesting of these individuals, uh, they once again became objectified and dehumanized uh, in, a, uh, in a different way and their identity literally deconstructed um, and they ceased to be persons and ultimately became, um, ultimately became objects for, for medical study and medical, medical consumption. And uh, certainly these themes still exist today uh, and uh, both within the hospital setting and the beliefs about black bodies. For example, I was shot, was it three years ago? Three years ago, four years ago, when the study came out and it was either JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine about how residents still believe these uh, ideologies tied to black bodies. They still believe that black folks can still resist more pain or they can tolerate more pain during childbirth. And so certainly the narrative is consistent. Certainly it still exists and certainly it can be applied to any, even with the institutionalized work I've done, any institutionalized setting. So you bring up the issue of uh, prisons, for example, where people lose their rights once they enter the institution um, and they are subjected to whatever the state or the federal government rules upon them or um, whatever it may be within that complex of the prison system, whether it be state or federal. So, so certainly there are many different ties to this work uh, in terms of how it sort of, it grows, it weaves, it's it, it navigates itself and how the methods that have been used to get at these issues can, can be applied to issues today. And uh, right now, uh, my colleagues and I, so uh, Madeline Mant, um, Megan Brickley and myself, uh, we've been working on a, a paper uh, looking at what we see amongst the institutionalized individuals in the Terry collection and applying that to sort of what we see today and how bioarchaeology can serve to connect the past to the present and in its own way uh, try and, and give some justice to the individuals that are still experiencing these same things today to try and have some voice in writing the wrongs or some voice, if not now, sometime in the future, an attorney picks this up who's working on public policy and says, you know, this is really important. So um, that's, I think, been the goal, at least with this publication. Um, and for many of us now uh, that are bioarchaeologists that are in this moment, um, Dr. Velasco, as you know, um, we sort of try to think about the the resonation, long-term resonation of our research and what it what it can do to help the individuals that we study in the past, their descendants in the present. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I hope that answered your question because that that was, you know, that's a very deep, you know, it's a very complicated, convoluted, it's it's complex. It's a lot to unpack, right? Which is a good thing. It's a good thing. But I think for you, you guys are the next generation coming in and you guys will have more time and you're in the discipline right now where it's so, it's so very vibrant and it's so very live and it's so very receptive to these ideas. Take it, cease it, 
you know, continue to impact these ideas. That's what's important as anthropologists. What we do is for the people. What we do is for the public. What we do is to make things better, right? Like to try and think, shed light on things to make things better for the next generation. We might not see the change in our own generation, right? And we don't, I certainly don't. My point when I started this, didn't expect to see a change within my own generation or even the generation before me. Um, but you just, you got to do it because it's important. And there will be other scholars coming up through graduate school, through undergraduate school, um, even as teenagers that will read your work and be like, oh, wow, and that'll, that'll serve that trigger. That's the promise of the discipline. And also, right, it, it's not uh, it's not measurable. It's not observable, right? <laughs> Often, you know, we're in a system that is measures and observes. And uh, that's that, you know, that effect, not ephemeral quality, but kind of, you know, enduring quality of, of our work and the work of others that we, we hope kind of persist into the next generation. Yeah. I uh, think we have next, to, to continue this discussion, to continue our discussion on, on your work, uh, Claire. Yeah, Claire. Hi, I'm Claire Shalantan, and I'm a third year classical archaeology PhD student in classics. And I'm interested in Hellenistic, Roman, Sicily, and especially looking at um, mortuary and funerary customs uh, in the island. Um, my question is I, I was wondering if you could say more about how you understand and in a way reconcile, I guess, the tension between the focus on identity and the individuals themselves and their very unique um, life experience on the one end and generalizing your findings on the other, um, especially because since you work on collections that are uh, very important and have a huge impact and are very much utilized um and so yeah i was wondering how representative they are how comfortable you feel um generalizing and yeah just like if you could say more about this tension between in a way structure and in the agency of the individual and like how they fit together yeah um that's a great question because obviously when you're dealing with a large number of individuals over 600 in this case sometimes it's uh it's uh, not everyone has, everyone has their own individuality and everyone has their, and I'm sorry if I'm looking for, that's what I do when I, I sort of think, but, um, and I'm not used to being at this angle where I'm like down here on the, <laughs> but um, so everyone has their own individual agency and everyone sort of has their own, um, well, don't, they don't sort of, they do have their own identity. Um, but when you're dealing with sort of, um, you know, a massive lot of individuals as 650 um, individuals can be, or 621 individuals can be, um, there is a lot of generalization. And so, and coping with that and dealing with that, especially in my publication record, I have other publications where I actually pull out individual narratives um, of their lives and explain, you know, what happened, how did, how did, how did they get to this point? Um, there's one person in particular uh, I'm not supposed to give names, uh, although I know their names. I'm not supposed to publish names per the request of um, per the request of the um, curators uh, at the time. Uh, but there's one individual, JL, who comes out strongly and who I wrote about uh, in a book chapter. Uh, it was called Fractured Lives, 
just the path that his life took in terms of how he ended up with all these fractures and and what had happened to him just from being able to trace him through the newspapers and trace him through the census and it was a it was a tragic a tragic story of uh, you know watching his brother uh, shoot his mother and uh, then being married but like his brother falling into uh, alcoholism and a habit of alcoholism and uh, then also abusing his wife newspapers can get very personal about these things during this time period um, and so uh, sort of discussing and teasing that out um, there are other individuals as well who I've been able to literally pinpoint um, through the census and find uh, there was a, a particular uh, individual uh, an African-American male in the the Hammond Todd collection who had an amputated arm and uh, I was able to locate him on his um locate his World War One, I think it was, registration card and how he was dismissed, you know, from service because of the arm and what his job was, where he lived. Uh, he had gotten in a, um, he had gotten in the crossfire of a robbery at a grocery store and the newspaper article had actually said, he's expected to survive. His injuries are minor. He died the next day. Um, yeah. So uh, in terms of so in terms of the generalization, uh, it's really hard when you're, you know, when you're a bioarchaeologist and you're dealing with a large number of individuals to try and um, do a sort of individual narrative. So when I'm able to find one that I can trace through, I pull it out, I set it aside for publication, right? Because I think that's important to then come back and circle to what you're sort of getting at in terms of dealing with that generalization issue. Um, I think at the time, in regard to my publications, the um, the purpose was really to shed light on, uh, again, you know, there's a large number of individuals coming from the South, a large number of Black individuals that are in these collections. So what's the one thing that would make Black Southerners and the particular cities that actually align with what we know in terms of Black and migration from the South? Uh, for example, in Cleveland, we know that they were coming from, Black immigrants were coming from particular cities in the South, or I'm sorry, particular states in the South. To, so it's almost like, um, it's almost like when you think of migrants today, uh, there are certain cities or certain neighborhoods that certain migrants from certain parts of a country will settle in because there's always, there's already that community cohesiveness established. And so I was able to see sort of those patterns with the Black immigrants in Cleveland. Uh, St. Louis, it was a little bit more murkier because you have a lot more folks coming in. And uh, the history of St. Louis, you hop on that Mississippi River to get away from slavery um, uh, historically. Um, so it's a great question that I wish I had a direct answer to, Claire. It's a really great question. But I can say for the institutionalized individuals, uh, there's definitely, I think for me, in terms of thinking about generalization, less generalization in the sense that I know exactly what institutions they died in. So I know exactly uh, in terms of the um, the reports that released by those institutions, as well as the, the newspaper articles and exposés on those institutions over time. So I know exactly in terms of their environment, what they would have experienced. So I feel like there's less on that aspect. Um, and uh, maybe a little more in terms of thinking about my black folk, thinking about what Monty Cobb called collectively, um, he called 
but folks, the brethren collectively. So thinking about the brethren, um, but I try to pull out those individual narratives and publish them and some other aspect to do, sort of do the right and honing in. So here's the larger, here's the larger funnel work and then funneling down to these individual narratives. So I, I hope that sort of gets at and answers your question. I mean, I know being a bioarchaeologist sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of generalization in terms of we can't always know what everybody experienced, but I don't believe in coincidences in the sense that when I have a large number of individuals coming from certain places that um, I, I can I can only do the best in terms of the historical research, uh, in terms of uh, knowing about the environments and what they in which they live, knowing that eco-social approach, um, in terms of in integrating all that evidence into sort of interpreting what things would have been like, may have been like. So, um, and certainly trying to remove that, that dehumanized aspect that um, the process of anatomization gave them, so. Thank you, thank you very much. You're welcome, you're welcome. Thank you for asking a difficult question. Yeah, I, it gets to the heart of, bio, like there's a tension in bioarchaeology um, arguably since its founding, right, of the individual and the population. And the, the population approach and, uh, has been so dominant in the field, and yet in the past decade, especially with the notion of osteobiography, and your work is especially well suited to speak to individual experience when you have I, you know, associated documents and, and records. Uh, but yet there is something, you know, I think what I appreciate about your work is you are getting at these broader social and economic processes that are ongoing, that are, that are national in scope. Um, and that's always attention. We're always looking for that link, I think. Uh, and, and this offers a really useful case study for those who don't have records and how they think and conceptualize uh, individuals and populations or collectivity. Um, we have so much to, 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 to still get to. So I want to turn to Anna Whitmore now. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm, I'm Anna. I am a third year in the anthropology PhD program, um, archaeological anthropology, and I use bioarchaeology and stable isotope analysis to, um, to try and understand individuals who were forced to move by the Inca Empire um, in, in the Andes. And sort of on that note, I have a couple of different questions I was trying to choose between, but I think I, I'm wondering because I'm I'm in the process of trying to figure out how my work can speak to um, contemporary issues, maybe not in a direct way, um, but but in some way. So I'm wondering, um, as I was reading and listening to your talk yesterday, talking about the 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 Great Migration, which I hadn't heard a lot about from a bioarchaeological perspective in the past, um, but I'm I was thinking about that in relation to the experiences that people leaving Mexico and Central America and coming to the US today as one of the, the one of the largest um, migrant groups in the world. Um, what do you think that our work as bioarchaeologists can do to, to speak to their uh, experiences of um, structural inequality in their, in their home settings and then coming to the US and again, finding these structural inequalities facing them. I, I, I was definitely thinking about those parallels in the great migration narrative to what's to what's happening today um, at the same time as I was kind of trying to, as, as I'm trying to figure out how to make 
my work relate or be relevant to um, modern situations. Okay, yeah, I, I'm sorry about that. I'm on the mobile, it vibrates, I apologize. Um, yeah, th that's a great question. So I think bioarchaeologists, because I mean, even if we go back to, um, you know, our biocultural synthesis um, and moving forward into our eco-social theory and many of the different theories that we've now applied from other disciplines, actually, which I always find fascinating that now the discipline is like receptive to theory, right? I, I came up in a time when theory was, it wasn't always, um, not necessarily the biocultural synthesis, but other sort of cultural theories and feminist theories, it, it wasn't always receptive to that. Um, so I think that there's a lot that we can contribute, honestly, because we can see, um, we can see the impact of migration, right? Uh, in terms of moving from one place being, whether it's displacement, uh, which in the case of your research, Anna, there's clearly displacement happening here, if they're being, if the, these Inca groups are being forced to move, right? from whether it be displacement or even um, even economic immigration uh, again um, we do have that sort of power to see the impact of that migration uh, in terms of how it's going to affect particularly children right children are perhaps the most plastic to use a human uh, human biology term the most plastic um, uh, individuals uh, amongst us in terms of how they're impacted by their environment and how they respond. And so those childhood stresses, you know, in terms of uh, stunted growth uh, and all the stuff that Barry Bogan has talked about. And Barry Bogan's done a lot of research on this in terms of looking at migrants, uh, immigrants from uh, Central America um, coming into, uh, and Maya immigrants coming into the United States. Uh, looking at those sort of indicators of growth that have been impacted that go down to the bone. So we do have the ability to speak to that in the past and connect it to the present consistently because we see that. We also see, I mean, at least in my own work, one of the things I think that disturbed me the most was that it's like, you think even though we are, it's, 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 it's the 21st century, right? Migration happens. <laughs> It's like you want to tell people to deal with it. It happens. Migration happens at this point, right? It, it's going to happen. But I still see the same sorts of responses from the public that I saw in the past in my own research, you know, even during the Great Migration, the same responses to this influx of Black bodies moving into the North, where you, there's this, I think, perception amongst many that the North was a more hospitable environment for African-Americans during this time. And some places, yes, but not in all places and not all people. Uh, and so those, um, those um, tensions play out similarly kind of to the tensions we're seeing today with other migrants coming into this country or trying to come into this country, you guys can click on the news and see. And um, uh, again, so those similarities that we see in terms of how they impact the skeleton, or, or the effects, whether it plays out in terms of violence, whether it plays out in terms of lack of access to healthcare, which can cause other issues. Um, again, whether it plays out uh, in terms of actually immigrating into a community where there are other folks from the, your same region that you can come together, form that community cohesiveness and have a little buffering 
from some of the ills of society, um, but not always all the ills of society. So I think those are ways, I mean, those are pathways, I think, in which bioarchaeology can sort of contribute to the past, bringing it forward into the present. Um, and at the end of the day, I'd like to believe that we can't say that this is just unique to black bodies, or we can't say that this is just unique to um, Mexican immigrants, or this is just unique to this or that. Uh, because it seems that it's always the same narrative in regard to once you get a large group of these individuals settled or trying to settle in the community, social tensions start to erupt uh, in regard to why are you here? What are you doing here? You're taking our jobs and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, that's my, my thought, my perspective on it. Yeah, thank you. That was really helpful. That first of all, yeah, thank no. you for the recommendation of Dr. Bogan's work. And then also it, that was a lot of things that I've been thinking about. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Bogan has done a lot of work on that um, over the years. And it's been fascinating to read his work and, and read how there are actually differences between the, the migrants that come to this country versus um, what's happening back in their natal communities, the communities that they were born in, in terms of stature and height and belief. And so, um, so um, but I think for your dissertation, you're going to have a lot to work with, which is really, really cool. Thank you too much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, just don't, don't, don't like, don't get overwhelmed. Take one thing, run with it, and then just keep going with it in terms of your career. That's the best advice I can give all of you, right? Find those things that, you know, you think, okay, this is great for a dissertation, but then those things that you really want to investigate, hold on for a research program once you get your PhD. That's very helpful. Yeah. Keep a running, keep a Word document or a Google Doc with just those those ideas that are on the cutting room floor or you can't fit in. Uh, that's great advice. I want to turn, I think, to the, our last discussant, uh, Emily Sharp. Hi. Yeah, that's, thanks for getting my question in at the end here. Um, I, hi, I'm Emily Sharp. I'm uh, in the Masters of Archaeology here. Um, and I'm uh, more broadly interested in funerary and uh, human remain, funerary assemblages, including human remains in the Roman Empire. Um, and what I'm currently working on for my thesis is a group of Egyptian mummies from the Roman era that uh, might exhibit non-binary identities. Um, yeah, it's cool. Anyway, <laughs> my question um, is, I was hoping, well, okay, so I was really, um, moved by a lot of your language use in both your talk and your um writing uh just like some of the terms you used and um for example you know referring to the collections to the individuals as captured um or you know even the term non-sexual uh, non-sexual excuse me non-consensual um dissection and the lack of using the word specimen just kind of this language choices that um i haven't necessarily heard before um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on, you know, one, if you think, I mean, I assume so that language use really is this powerful tool and what your process is kind of when you, um, you know, approach uh, publications and um, how you possibly, like possibly how you think language use um, is and choice is, could be relevant to like looking at other collections of human remains, not just in uh, your context, but also maybe in like ancient contexts and, and so on. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. That's a, that's a really great question. So 
Um, one of the things I alluded to in the presentation yesterday was that um, I guess because of the way that I was raised and the way that I came up, you know, the dead were very much part of the living. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't grandma's remains or it wasn't Aunt Edna's remains, you know, it was Aunt Edna, right? So I, I guess in a way we were, um, in a way we were uh, already post-enlightenment enlightened. <laughs> so so I, I do think language is very important, especially in these this particular moment in which we're in in bioarchaeology. So for me, the writing, I always have to, so you ask the writing process, sit, stare at screen, cry, write, cry, get frustrated, walk away, cry. So all the things you're experiencing, right, that that happens, right? <laughs> it still happens, but that that's a joke. Um, for me, the writing, because I have this emotional connection to my work, I think that's what keeps me driving. And because I truly see these people as human, not as the remains of, you know, JL or the remains of EK or the remains of so-and-so. Um, I see them as actual people. They had actual lived experiences. And so that is critical. I think that's the first step in terms of ethically, ethically engaging with any collection um, or any, any, um, any sort of skeletal, um, skeletal remains of individuals is that they are human they were people these aren't you know these aren't the remains of um these aren't the remains of bill this is bill <laughs> you know um and so uh so that for me is always the first step in remembering that they are human so stop using terms like skeletal material specimens i still cringe when i hear specimens today and i know some folks don't do it intentionally i know that um, but I think reconstructing that language and reconstructing and reminding the writer that these were individuals is the first step because then they get into that mindset where, okay, I'm actually reading about someone who lived, someone who existed, someone who was real, not their remains. So, um, so for me, that's the first step. Uh, and then in terms of language use in general, I think about it from the perspective of the individual in terms of, you know, they didn't want to be, they didn't, they didn't say, hey, 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 I want to be dissected. This is what I want to happen to me. This was non-consensual. They did not agree to it. Um, it was not what they asked for. It was not what they requested. Um, so I sort of try and put myself in the individual shoes in terms of thinking about those things. And then in general, thinking about the injustices done to them. And I guess somewhere along that line, I, I get angry and, <laughs> and then it, it, it starts to take a mind of its own. So, uh, but the first step is definitely rehumanizing. And I think as bioarchaeologists and particularly as biological anthropologists, it is important, and uh, this is something that we were discussing post uh, post seminar yesterday. Um, it's important to think about how you write in terms of writing for the public, writing in a way that folks understand what you're discussing. So if you're using a lot of lingo or a lot of terminology that people aren't going to be familiar with, um, you have to define it. Think of it as you're writing for the guy who's in the barbershop waiting to get waiting to get that hot shave with a straight razor and that nice trim that he gets every week at the end of the week who may not know what anthropology is. You have to write in a way that's going to capture that individual. You have to write in a way that's going to capture 
you know, the folks who are important in terms of making policy change. Um, and so uh, when you get into that mindset, you realize right for the descendant communities that you're for the communities you're working with in a way that they're going to understand right um because that's what's important if you're writing for your descendant communities um in a way that they'll understand it then your work has the potential to breathe and live beyond in my opinion uh beyond the discipline right i mean i know that work gets around and through disciplines right but how much of that work actually transcends the discipline and jumps into other disciplines and then from other disciplines into the public eye. Um, and although we might not like it, it's actually the public. I can't say we might not like it, but um, others may not like it, but it is the actual public that once the public gets riled up about things that the public can implement change. Thank you. You know, well, I hope that I hope that answers your question. Oh, it it absolutely did. <laughs> yeah, that's a very powerful note to end on. I think you know what your work has shown us. It is so specific and precise in its focus, but is deeply relevant not only to you know, to how we do work in other times and places, and how we think about our relationship between. You know, what is traditionally this division between observer, objective observer, and the subject of analysis uh, that can push us more toward thinking about a, a relational the give and take between humans, among humans, in, uh, in different positions, uh, yes, but in dialogue uh, with each other. So thank you so much for um, pushing us toward thinking about these issues in, in context, many of us in, in the classics and in our history right, uh, removed from you know, 19th century U.S., 20th century U.S., and yet I think your work is, is speaking across these geographic boundaries and disciplinary boundaries in a way that's uh, very powerful and inspiring. Thank you. And honestly, as I had mentioned last night, I mean, to me, it's it's surreal to be I guess at this moment and stage in my career where this work has taken a life of its own and it's it's impacting others. It's um I, I would have never dreamed when I was where you guys are right now as a you know a graduate student that that, that this is what would have happened. And so I mean I'm 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 just grateful and happy that their stories, the folks that I write about, their stories are getting out there because as I was saying to um, the the post the post uh, the post uh, I can't think of the words now um, post colloquium last night you know I don't I don't write for me I don't and um, I write for the folks in the collections and just to get their stories and their narratives out I it's not for my career it's not for any of that but to give them that the justice that they they didn't get in life and to give them a life of their own and give them something that you know everyone sort of rights for to get immortality in a way. Um, I feel it's the only, the only, not the only, but one of the ways to right the wrongs that happen to them. So um, so I'm I'm truly honored to to be able to speak to y'all, to answer y'all's questions and truly honored to see the way, you know, the work has taken um, a life of its own. It's just surreal. It's very humbling. 
thank you so much for, for sharing your work, your stories, your experiences. For our listeners uh, at home, I encourage you to go to archaeology.cornell.edu, to Science TV, to watch Professor De La Cova's uh, colloquium from October 7th, uh, which we refer to multiple times in this podcast. And once again, I just want to uh, give my sincere and heartfelt thanks to Professor De La Cova for spending so much time with us at SIAMS these past few days and sharing uh, her work and experiences. Thank, thank you all for having me. I really am very grateful. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio SIAMS, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in November, will be with Sarah Gonzalez from the University of Washington. Radio SIAMS is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.